Well, as we continue to worship God through the preaching and hearing of His Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Clearly, uh, we are going to take a brief study, a brief break from our study through the Beatitudes, which we'll pick up again next week, if God wills. From time to time, in the summer particularly, and, you know, especially kind of given the season that we are in as a church. From time to time, I like for us to be reminded of the direction and and even our aspirations as a church. You know, if you're a member here, then, then you know that I began each one of our business meetings, our quarterly members meetings, uh, each time I, I begin by kind of reminding you of our purpose of our church. I read through our, the portion of our constitution that gives our mission statement, our reason for existing. Um, I also, in each business meeting, remind you of the vows and commitments that we make as members as part of this lo- uh, local congregation. And one reason I do that is because it's easy to forget, but also because you know sometimes it's easy for doubt to creep in from time to time. You know, we go through ups and downs as a church, and sometimes it's, you know, we, we start to think, is the church heading in the right direction? Is this a faithful church? Are we doing things right? Have we set the right priorities? Are we faithfully stewarding the, the resources that God has given us in the gospel? And of course, the only right and proper way to answer these questions is to look, look to Scripture. Lots of people have lots of opinions on what the church should look like, what the church should be doing, where should be our priorities, what should be our focus, but it's only through the lens of God's Word that we're able to properly evaluate these things, properly evaluate what God desires for us as a church. And so, in this respect, um, this is where this passage comes in. This morning, I want us to consider the church in Thessalonica as an exemplary church. A church to learn from. A church to model. And there in here in this passage, we will see some of the marks of an exemplary exemplary church that should encourage us and challenge us in the same respect. So let's read the first ten verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the entire chapter. Remember, this is God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God 
has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Uh, Pray with me again. Father, we stop and, Lord, we give You thanks for the work of faith that You have wrought in our hearts. Or the working of Your Word in us individually, but also in this congregation as a corporate body. Lord, as we come to Your Word, we we pray that You would continue that work. We pray that the Word would come to us with power and conviction in the Holy Spirit. For our desire, Lord, also is to imitate the Lord, to walk as He walked, that we might be an example to others to the glory of God as well. Father, visit us on high through your Holy Spirit, and we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, most of you probably know that uh, I love to read American war history. It's something that my dad passed down to me without a doubt. Uh, It's something I learned from my grandfathers as well, both of them. Served in World War II. They're always filling my head with stories as a child. I love to read American war history, but what, what's actually most fascinating to me about war history is, is studying how things all began. Uh, I find a certain kind of tragedy, um, a kind of mournful what if that, that you know, always surrounds the reason why people ultimately resort to taking up arms. And and so I love to read particularly what led to the great conflict. And, you know, of course, no matter what war you're studying, if you want to understand it, um, there's usually a long process that leads up to the actual outbreaking of of war itself. If you want to learn, for example, and understand the Vietnam War, you have to go back to the straining of Soviet relations following World War II. If you want to understand World War II, you have to go back to the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. Right? There's always a long like, series of events that leads up to what eventually becomes a full outbreak. And yet, at the same time, there's also always, in some sense, what we, what we might call a watershed moment. Um, an event where the mounting escalation, the tension just suddenly breaks out and there's no turning back, whether we talk about Pearl Harbor or the Gulf of Tonkin, for example. But one example I think is helpful for us is the Revolutionary War. If you look at the Revolutionary War, tensions between the United States and Britain were strained for quite some time. Um, But it was one skirmish between the colonial militia and the British Redcoats that really pushed things over the edge. The British were attempting to seize a a stockpile of American weapons and ammunition. And during this, kind of their attempt to seize this, a shot rang out. We don't know who fired the shot. uh, But a skirmish then broke out, and in the end, two Americans were dead. Very famously, Ralph, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson referred to that gunshot as the shot that was heard around the world. 
One event, one shot, ended up igniting a nation, unifying the nation against Britain. And of course, we know that the history of the world was forever changed. I believe this is a helpful illustration when we come to our text today and we see the impact of this little first century church in Thessalonica. Just as there was a long series of events that led up to a watershed moment, here we have a plan in the work of God that began in eternity past. Just as there's often one big event, a gunshot, that had massive and lasting implications, here we have a response of faith that resounded throughout the ancient world. It reverberated. It had an impact that lasted far beyond, extended far beyond the community or boundaries of this little church. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 4. He writes to this young church and he says, We know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. This points back to eternity past. This is the background. This is the prerequisite to to what eventually happened. But then in verse 5, because of God's work in eternity past, the Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is the watershed moment. This is the point of no return. This is, you know, the outbreak upon which everything changed. Then in verse 8, he notes how God's work in their midst resulted in the fact that not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. This is the shot that is heard around the world. The word of the Lord sounded forth from the Thessalonians. The report and the reputation of that church, it spread like wildfire through the ancient world. And this is why I'm calling this church the exemplary church. This is why I put this passage before you today that's particularly relevant for us. Because we have this brief account of a small church, how a, a, a tiny church became a very effective witness in a pagan society. We we see an account of a little church that ended up having a great and lasting impact on the kingdom of God. So as we think about our own situation, don't we wish to be a church where the Word of God is received in power and joy and the Holy Spirit with full conviction? Don't we wish to become imitators of the Lord in the manner in which we walk and live? Don't we wish to have a witness that extends far beyond the walls of this building and the boundaries of this community? Well, there's a lot that we can learn from this little church. And here we can look and see what we are to pursue and what God calls us to be here and now. Because, frankly, again, as I said earlier, lots of people have lots of opinions on what the church should look like and what should be its priorities and what should be its goals. But here we have the Word of God. And here we are taught what led to the kind of impact and effective witness in the world of this exemplary church. So to think through this, I want us to consider four characteristics or four marks of the exemplary church here. And again, I want to set this kind of in contrast to maybe what we might instinctively think are the marks of a good church. 
Right? We might think, okay, what is a, an effective church that's doing a lot for the glory of God? Well, typically we think of big churches with massive budgets and big buildings and maybe we, we, you know, lots of outreach and missionaries and all of these things. But here, I want to point to four simple marks, four simple characteristics of the exemplary church that have a far greater impact than what we might commonly think. So four things. From first, we see an effectual working of God. We see them embrace the high calling of the gospel. We see them exemplify obedience of the faith. We see them become an effective witness in the world. So, effectual, embrace, exemplify, and effective. Notice first, the Thessalonian church became what they became because of an effectual working of God. See this, we've got to look again at verses 4 and 5. Remember, of course, Paul starts the letter by giving thanks to God for them. But why does he give thanks to them? Because, in verse 4, we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians because he recognized that God was sovereignly at work in their midst. He chose them for salvation. It was evident to him that God had done a work. Apostle Paul looked and he saw this is a a body of believers who embraced the preaching of the Word. And it's because they had responded to the Word in this way that he could confidently say, I thank God because He chose you. He's recognizing in some sense that their faith didn't just fall out of the sky. They just didn't happen to respond positively to the gospel and thus impact the world. Otherwise, he would have started by praising them. But no, he starts by praising God. He says, what I'm seeing in your midst is there because God himself set that emotion in ages past. And here, brothers, we think about this. You know, the doctrine of divine election. Predestination. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. You know, as we come to this, we need to, we need to know. This isn't just a matter of speculation. We're not just pontificating on the purposes of God, trying, trying to determine who the elect are, who the non-elect are, having all of those arguments. This right here is a comfort and assurance to them. God is at work in your midst. He's praising and thanking God. And for, our, for us in our day, we don't need to get caught up in this question of who's elect and who isn't because all we need to do is, like Paul here, consider how someone responds to the Gospel. If the Word of God comes to someone with power and full conviction in the Holy Spirit, we too can confidently say, I know God has chosen you. And we can give thanks to God for that. But the point at hand particularly is, we need to remember, we've got to begin here. 
if we want to follow the example of this church as an effective witness in the world. It's only on the basis of God acting first that we will ever then have participation in the building of His kingdom. Remember, we're not building our kingdom. We're not building our church. We're not pursuing our agenda, our dreams, our plans, what we think the world needs, what we think our community needs. We are receiving a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. We are following the Lordship of Christ who said, I will build my church. We are following the great shepherd of the sheep who says, I will call them out of the world and gather them into one. That's why any effective and faithful church begins with God. It begins with His purposes. It begins with His plan. It begins with His Word. That's why our focus centrally must be upon God and worshiping God and receiving the gifts of God and adoring and glorifying God rather than getting all caught up in what do we need to be doing? Who do we need to be ministering to? Who do we need to be loving? Who do we need to be serving? Who do we need to be reaching? Those are important questions. Those are necessary questions. But it begins with God. A God-centered focus because an effective witness doesn't start with our action. It doesn't even start with our will. It starts with Him. And so we cast ourselves upon Him as a sovereign builder of the church. So God had visited Thessalonica. He was working in their midst. And if we long to be a church in like manner, we must be fervent in prayer. We must be looking and asking and waiting for God to give what only He can give. It comes through His Word. The preaching of His Word. Secondly, though, another mark and characteristic of this model church is that we see them embrace the high calling of the Gospel. They embrace the high calling of the gospel. Look in uh, verses 5 and 6. Middle of uh, verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What's noteworthy about this verse is in this phrase describing how they received the word in much affliction. What's key here is that Paul's not saying that they received the word and that brought affliction. Uh, The grammar is particular here. Affliction was the manner in which they received the word. For example, I might say, um, I ran to church. When I say I ran to church, uh, I'm not just saying that, you know, I traveled to church. I went from my house to the church. With the phrase, uh, I ran, I'm communicating the way in which I traveled to church. It was by running. Kids, this is different than running in church, okay? Um, Not giving you permission to do that. Paul, in this sense, is saying the way in which they received the word was in affliction. From the very beginning, the way in which they embraced the gospel was with suffering. 
the suffering that came along with it. Well, the background to the church in Thessalonica goes back to Acts chapter 17, when the church started. Paul, uh, basically, was a visitor in the city, and uh, he just started preaching the gospel, and a riot broke out. You know, he fired a shot, as it were. And before long, the whole city was in an uproar. The authorities were in an uproar. And we think about this and we say, well, you know, the, the Thessalonians had every reason not to embrace the gospel. Everyone in their city was, was stirred up in a violent rage against what Paul was saying. They embraced it anyway. They received the word, even though in receiving that word, it brought immediate affliction and persecution. That's another reason why Paul can be so confident in saying God's chosen you and God's at work upon you. Because most people run from suffering. They don't run to suffering. This can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, in our day, it's not quite the same. We live in a relatively free and safe society. Although, it's quickly changing, isn't it? And there's many examples of this, but I, I just think of what Carl Truman actually said 10 years ago. He said, you know, before long, embracing biblical sexual ethics will be like being a white supremacist in our culture. It's quickly getting that way. And that's just one example of the many ways in which, yes, persecution is subtly starting to encroach upon us. But for the most part, we do live in a free and safe society. If you receive the word this morning, it's not going to be in the manner of affliction. Unless something changes between now and the end of the service, which I doubt. Regardless, don't we need to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that the call of the gospel is a call of suffering? Don't we need to keep in mind that gospel and suffering cannot be separated? Here, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1 briefly. Philippians 1.29. Philippians was written, the Apostle Paul is in jail. He's suffering. And how easy it is for the church to think, oh, wow, okay, our leader's suffering. He's doing something wrong. How do you make God mad? Oh, he's suffering. What does that mean for us? What are we going to expect? I don't want to be a part of that. Something crazy is happening. Something wrong is happening. But he says in verse 129, For it has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Did you catch that Like that's the two, first two points of this sermon? Right here. It's been granted to you to believe. God's effectual working in salvation. God's chosen you for salvation. But that's not all. He's also chosen you for something else. Not only does He give you the gift of faith, but He gives you the gift. And I emphasize the word gift. He's given you the gift of suffering as well. To suffer for my sake. Have you come to the realization that you can't have one without the other? Chosen for salvation, chosen for suffering. They go together. The essence of the Christian life 
is living a life in imitation of Christ, following in His steps. And did the Lord Jesus Christ suffer? So part of the reason why the Thessalonians had become such a model church is because they didn't just embrace suffering, they joyfully embraced suffering. They didn't resist and stiffen their neck and look for an easy way out. The manner in which they received the gospel was in affliction. And they embraced the high calling of the gospel to love our enemies, to love those who hate us and use us and take advantage of us, to turn the other cheek rather than pull out the sword and strike back, to undergo suffering for the greater good of the gospel, for the greater glory of God, understanding that the gospel and the church is of far greater importance than our own personal comfort. Again, they embrace this suffering into verse 6 with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How can you do that only in the Holy Spirit? Only because they had been chosen by God and redeemed. It was the Spirit who was empowering them to be such a witness, to, to embrace suffering not begrudgingly, but with joy. And this is what led to them becoming a resounding, reverberating witness to a watching world. This is how we become a witness to the fact that our hope and joy does not lie in the things of this life, but in things unseen. It's how we become a witness to the fact that God is in control and our times are in His hands. And we do wait and look for His vindication. It comes in consummation at the last day, not here and now. It's a witness to the fact that our lives have a purpose beyond just ourselves. Again, think about it. Your life and your salvation has a purpose beyond just you. And that's hard for us to sometimes come to grips with because isn't that the ups and downs of the daily life? God, what are you doing in my heart? What are you doing in my life? Why are you bringing this? Why are you leading me here? Why are you bringing this person into my life? Why are you bringing this verse into my life? We're so self-focused. But suffering reminds us it's not just about you. It's about the greater good of the kingdom. You're part of the flock. You're part of the body. You saved a part of that, not just individually. When we embrace suffering and the high calling of the gospel, we bear witness to that. That we have a purpose beyond just ourselves. We also bear witness to the reality that often when we are at our weakest, when we are most heartbroken, when we are most baffled by our circumstances, when we are most ready to give up, God is often doing His greatest work in us. You can only see that with faith. So if we long to become an effective example and witness in this world, then we have to embrace The reality that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution and we must not shy away from it. 
So often we do everything we can to escape suffering. And that's part of nature. But in the gospel, there is a limit to that. Spending all of our time trying to avoid suffering is not in line with the fact, with the reality of what God has called you to. So let us too embrace the high calling of the gospel. Effectual working of God, embracing the high calling of the gospel. Thirdly, they exemplified the obedience of the faith. Look at verse 6. Paul mentions here, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now suffering, of course, is part of what he means by this. Apostles were suffering, the Lord was suffering, you willingly suffered as well. But I just want to point out how this you know, kind of highlights the great humility of the Thessalonians. They were willing to follow the leaders that God had placed over them. They weren't primarily concerned with what they thought that God had planned for their life. They weren't going about Christianity you know, in their own unique way. In humility, they followed those over them in the Lord. This, of course, goes along with the gospel. When you come to Christ, it is the end of you. It's the end of you. You're called to die to yourself. You're called to take up your cross so that you might live to God. Like the description of believers in 2 Thessalonians 5 is that Paul describes them as those who live not for themselves. They no longer live for themselves. Do you still live for yourself? So when we see this with the eyes of faith, we see what what a blessing that is that that the call to die to ourselves is, is, is a grace. Because the greatest... Our greatest problem and threat is ourselves. All of temptations and allurements of the world would mean nothing to you if you didn't have a heart bent on evil. God frees us from our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, our own ignorance, our own powerlessness by calling us to live no longer for ourselves. And and brethren, of course, that's a message we desperately need in our day. We live in an anti-authoritarian culture. We we live in a day with great personal autonomy. Imitate others? No, no, I want to chart my own path. I want to go my own way. I'm going to live life on my own terms. That's a constant siren song of our culture, personal autonomy. And if anybody challenges that, it's oppressive. But brother, we need someone to lead us. It's inherent in the fact that we are called sheep in Scripture. So part of the Gospel call is to recognize our own frailty and to follow those that the God has placed over us in leadership. And the flip side of this, of course, is the fact that we also need godly leaders to imitate. Don't we? That's why we talk about a well-ordered church. We need men who can stand up with a clear conscience and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Can you with a good conscience say to others, imitate my life? The church needs such men. The church needs such men who are willing to lay aside their their own dreams. 
their own uh, ideas and agendas, uh, maybe about ministry, maybe about the life and career they want to pursue, they, to lay aside those things for the greater spiritual good of God's people. The church needs men who are willing to lay everything aside for the true health and godliness of the church. The church needs men who are, first and foremost, have a heart willing to serve without recognition, without reward, without notoriety. The church needs men who who can set a clear example of service and suffering and devotion and faithfulness so that the sheep can look and follow and imitate. Because without this, there is no exemplary church. Without this, there is no shot heard around the world. The church needs men to lead, to shepherd faithfully, to serve humbly, we might follow, that we might imitate. And so if we long to be an exemplary church, we too are called to submit to the Lord in all things, to imitate our Lord and walk just as He walked, and to imitate our leaders as well insofar as they follow Christ. It's critical to the witness in the flourishing of the church before the eyes of a watching world. Well, fourth and uh, lastly, I want to consider the outcome of this all. How they became an effective witness to the gospel. God's effectual work among them. They embraced the high calling of the gospel. They exemplified obedience of the faith, imitating their leaders and the Lord. And fourthly, this leading to them becoming an effective witness the world. And here, uh, focusing on uh, verse 7 through 10. Because of all of what came before, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not need, need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This comes back to to how I began in this phrase, the word of the Lord sounded forth. It is the shot heard around the world. Because the phrase literally denotes to ring out like a loud bell. That's what it means. It's an echoing sound. It's a resounding sound. It's a sound that that everybody is aware of, hears, it gets their attention. And Paul says, you know, this this resounded throughout a pretty large geographical area. Macedonia and Achaia cover several hundred miles from Thessalonica. In the ancient world, that's a long, long way before modern transportation. This would include the churches in Philippi and Berea. Achaia would have included Athens and Corinth. Paul's saying, everybody's heard of you. Everyone's heard of you. But notice how Paul says that the word sounded forth from you. It's the word of the Lord that sounded forth. The, the phrase, the word of the Lord, it responds to the message of, uh, refers to the message of the gospel. But specifically, in this context here, it was the faith and the obedience of the Thessalonians that was sounding forth. 
what I mean by this is that it is both the gospel as well as their exemplary faith that was sounding forth in conjunction. The gospel is both a verbal testimony and an ethical behavior. It goes together. Uh, Maybe you've heard the famous line by uh, uh, St. Francis. Actually, it's wrongly attributed to him, but um, he gets the credit for it. Um, The famous line, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You know, first glance, it might be inspiring, Sounds sentimental. But, you know, this is really a very dangerous half-truth. You can't preach the gospel without words. It's impossible. The Scriptures, over and over and over again, say the lost cannot hear, uh, uh, believe if the message isn't proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ preached. Faith, conversion, uh, comes through a knowledge of the truth. Embracing a knowledge of the truth. But while we say that, we also got to say, on the other hand, the gospel's not just words. It's never less than words, but it is more than words. God has ordained that the gospel message is to be backed up and adorned with the godly lives of believers. It's when we proclaim the gospel and we adorn the gospel with our lives that God moves to save sinners. Because we cannot deny with our lives the message of the gospel we profess with our lips. And so Paul says that the message of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, but also, verse 8, that your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. The word went forth, your faith went forth. Your faith is described in verse 9 and 10. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and they are waiting for His Son in heaven. Remember, this is a culture that was steeped in idolatry. To turn from idols was an astounding break with tradition and culture in that day. It would be like, I don't know, refusing to have a smartphone or a computer in our day, maybe? Traveling around on a horse and buggy? Um, that's how countercultural it would have been in that day to turn away from the idols. So uh, you can imagine then why they become famous. They turn from idols to serve the living God, the true God. Serving Him. That means obeying Him. Walking in obedience to the faith. And also their faith is described not just turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God, but to wait for His Son from heaven. Remember here as well, Christian faith entails waiting. Waiting because our inheritance is not of this world. Waiting because our Lord and Savior has risen from the dead. And He is ruling and reigning on our behalf as our brother, as our forerunner, as our advocate, as our Savior. And that He will return 
He will come and rescue us from the wrath to come. The judgment that is coming upon all the world. And He will rescue us because He's already endured that wrath for us in our place at the cross. This is the Gospel that lies at the heart of a faithful church and the the church that is an effective witness in the world. It's that Gospel that calls us to faith in Christ. It's that Gospel that calls us to love, obedience to God, turn from idols to serve Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Gospel that calls us to hope, to be stirred by the reality of the eternal life that awaits us when Christ returns again. Faith, hope, and love. And the result of that then is in verse 8. We don't need to say anything because of this. Paul's basically saying, you know, you lessened my load. My evangelistic load as an apostle. You've made my labors easier. You've furthered my ministry. I don't have to start from scratch. You're so famous. that people heard about you. They know you. And they're more willing to accept the Gospel. And this is an exemplary church. This is how the church, the Gospel resounded like a shot in their midst. A shot that was heard around the ancient world. A shot that had a far greater impact than just the city of Thessalonica. And Paul sees that. He praises God for it. And he begins this letter by assuring them of what God was doing in their midst in order to encourage them to keep doing what you're already doing. Don't waver in the face of setbacks and challenges or opposition. Faith, hope, and love. That is the exemplary church. And brethren, that's the message for us in our day as well. Again, to go back and just think about what in your mind stands out as the exemplary church. The faithful church and the effective witness. Here we have the answer from the Word of God right here. God-centeredness. I thank God for choosing you. God's sovereignty. Joyful suffering. Faithful obedience. Godly leaders. Example of faith. Brethren, as we bring this to conclusion this morning, I just want to ask you, is this this what we long for in our church? That we might walk in this path? So often we think that we have to do amazing things in order to have an impact on the kingdom. But these are fairly simple things here. You're not going to find it in church growth manuals. You're not going to find it in the popular ministry models. But these are the simple things of a true and mature faith. Prayer and trusting in God's sovereignty, God's centeredness, that He might build His church through the preaching of the Word. Embracing suffering, sticking to our convictions rather than the easy way out. Humility in seeing that we need to be led. That God delights in a well-ordered church of godly leaders. Sheep imitating 
their life in the example of our Lord, and a countercultural, faithful, devoted obedience as an adornment of the gospel, the faith and love and hope that resound to the glory of God. It's not the stuff that makes headlines. It's not the stuff that builds big churches. It's not the stuff that people will look and say, man, I want to be a part of that church. It's so fun and kip, uh, hip and cool. But it's what pleases our God and Savior. And these things are to be the things that we ought to long for in our church that we might be an effective witness. Not only here, not only in Chattanooga, but in the world at large. It starts here. My prayer then is that God will do such a work in our midst. My prayer then is that just as this Word of God came to the Thessalonians with such power and conviction in the Holy Spirit, that He would grant that today to you as an individual, but also to us as a body as well. Let's cast ourselves upon the God of all grace, our sovereign God, that He might complete the work that He's begun in us. Amen. Let's pray.